Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll drop back a couple of verses to chapter 11, verse 39. I'll start there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Now I left you hanging on Sunday with the question, what was the promise that they did not receive? What's the promise that they have yet to receive? Because clearly the great cloud of witnesses we will be reading about in the first verse of chapter 12 did not receive what was promised. So what was promised and what will they receive and we with them? What is the promise? Well, we're going to answer that tonight. But we're going to take all of chapter 12 to do so. In chapter 12, one more time, I will tell you that we have the hope of Christ Jesus verified. This is a hope that surrounds us. It is a hope that grounds us. It's a hope that abounds in us. And finally, it's a hope that founds us. And that's your outline for chapter 12. So one more time, it's a hope that surrounds us, a hope that grounds us, a hope that abounds in us, and finally, a hope that founds us. We begin with a hope that surrounds us. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And while the shouts and the cheers of so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us fill the air... We are called to drop all encumbrances and to let go, lay aside the entanglements of sin and run the race with endurance. Or as we said on Sunday, when the race is on, the weights come off. And we run. And I remind you also from Sunday that it's it's not saints and apostles and, and martyrs that get us across the finish line. They can be encouraging, but they cannot get us home. They don't have the power to do that. Only Jesus has the power. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus who is the fixed point of all hope. Not just our hope. He is the fixed point of hope, period. If there is any hope in this world, in our lives, on the earth... That hope is Jesus Christ. He's the fixed point of hope and we fix our eyes on Him because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the hope that surrounds us, not just the great cloud of witnesses. Again, they're cheering us on. The hope that surrounds us is Jesus. He's out there in front of us. He is not only the finisher, but He is the author, the chief of our faith. So He's gone before us. He is working in us. That is, He is the finisher of our faith. He abides with us. He even indwells us. Therefore, He's the one that's got us completely surrounded. In fact, if you'll listen just for a moment while I read to you John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another Helper that He may be with you forever. 
That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Again and again, on that Thursday night, Jesus said, I've got you surrounded. I have got you surrounded. I will come to you. I will be with you. I will be in you. He is the hope that surrounds us. So if you're feeling hopeless ever, then the person you look to is Jesus. The one you cry out to is Jesus. The one we run to, the one we come to, the one we look at and consider is Jesus Christ. The hope that surrounds us. Point number two. We're really moving tonight. Point number two. And we talked about verses 1 and 2 quite a bit on Sunday. And if you didn't hear that, go back and listen to it. Study it through. It's vital to our faith, vital to our hope. But point number two is a hope that grounds us. That was a key word of discipline in my home growing up. You're grounded, mister. I think the idea of being grounded was to ground me, at least in terms of discipline and in terms of appropriate behavior. And the key to a grounded hope is, in fact, that. It's discipline. Verse 3, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Jesus, consider him. Think about him. Now, we're about to head into this section, what I'm calling a hope that grounds us. It's a section on discipline and how to walk disciplined and live a a disciplined spiritual life and how the Father's discipline works in us. But it begins, as with everything else, with Jesus. Consider Him. So consider Him for a moment. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, quoting Jesus saying, I gave my back to those who strike. And my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. You know, there's one place in all of Scripture where we get a picture of what Jesus may have looked like. And it's Isaiah 50 verse 6. Because it tells us he had a beard. A beard that could be plucked out. And he endured that. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Hey, consider him. Having a hard day, having a tough week. Has this year been difficult for you already? Consider Jesus. Pause for a moment and process what he went through. He whose blood was spilled and spent for us. Think about Jesus. How did Jesus deal with hatred and hostility and even bloodletting at His expense? What did He do? How did He deal with it? Consider Him. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin... Nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 
And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And you know what? That healing of Jesus and that attitude And that behavior and that example of Jesus, that healing heals us from the desire for retribution or revenge when there is hostility against us, when there's negativity toward us. Specifically, I'm talking about as Christians. When someone's coming at you because you're simply living out your faith, our human tendency, the natural man, the natural woman, would fight back or would want justice, or seek retribution, consider Jesus. He did not. Paul went so far as to say, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Philippians 1.29 and verse 30, experiencing the same conflict, the same agon, we read that verse on Sunday, the same race, the same contest, which you saw in me and now here in me. It's been granted to you for Christ's sake to suffer. Consider Christ. Consider Christ for discipline's sake so that you will develop a hope that grounds you. A hope that stabilizes you and establishes you. A hope that grounds us. Now the pastor continues with this primarily Judeo-Christian audience. And I remind you, he's dealing with issues that they must be facing over and over in the letter. We've seen this many times now. In the sermon, he's dealt with the fact that these people are under oppression and persecution and hardship, and it's making many of them weary. It's wearing them out. They're tired of it. It's not like early on when when it first hit, and they were like, yeah, bring it on. Now, now it's been years they've been walking in faith, and they're getting a little tired of getting beaten up for it. They're tired of the hostility. And so the pastor keeps speaking, and now he's speaking these words of hope and encouragement, grounding their faith, as he says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. Now he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. And in that, Solomon, when he wrote that, is having a father-to-son conversation about the discipline of the father toward his sons and daughters. That the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. He'll say the same thing, by the way, to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. After a pretty scathing letter to the church at Laodicea, God reminds them... I'm doing this because I love you. Jesus says, I'm disciplining you because you matter so much to me. But in this letter, again, think about this. This is amazing to me. Jewish Christians, tired, weary. The race is long. Hassles, persecutions that were welcomed at first, not so much now. How does the pastor characterize their suffering? And the answer is discipline. Now this is vital to our faith. So get this. 
He doesn't blame the assaults and the attacks on the enemy or as coming from the outside. He attributes all of their agon, their struggles, their difficulties to God. He says that the hardships that you're facing, the persecutions that are coming at you, well, that's the discipline of the Lord. He must really love you to be utilizing these things against you. Note this in verse 7. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Wait a minute. Wait, you're saying God is doing this? Exactly. God is handing me my hardships? Uh Uh-huh. God sent that persecutor? Hey, let me put it to you this way. You've probably heard this before. What Satan means for evil... God always means for good. Nothing happens on this earth that God is unaware of. Your persecutions don't come when God's back is turned. Oh, what? Oh, I didn't mean for that to happen. He is either sovereign or He's not. And if He's sovereign, that means when we go through the hardships, He's completely aware of them. Go back and study the book of Job and think that one through. Where Satan comes before God and begins to taunt God and God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, well, he's just doing what he's doing because you blessed him. Okay, take away his blessings then. God allows these things to happen. Utilizes them in our lives for discipline's sake. Now, this calls upon you and upon me to have some faith. And to trust that Father knows best. And that He is utilizing even these difficult, oppressive hardships in our lives. As they come, He is utilizing them for discipline. Proverbs 13.24 He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. God loves you, loves me so much, that He will utilize even attacks from the enemy if it will strengthen us if it will discipline our hope this is part of what he's doing and I don't want to sugarcoat this at all think about this this way he disciplines because he loves love without discipline is codependency discipline without love is cruelty but loving discipline is what I call divinity it's what God does he has a goal for you for me That goal is eternity. And once our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ, He's sanctifying us for the eternal. He's sanctifying us for the kingdom, for that which is yet to come. And it's so important to understand this right here and now for endurance sake. Because if we don't get this, we start to play the victim and the martyr. From time to time we have talked about that in here. I've known too many Christian victims. You know... Think of it this way. The victim is always under hateful assault. The victor is always under loving authority. The victim whines about his suffering. The victor welcomes his sanctification. The victim fears the enemy. The victor fears the Lord. And what does the Bible tell us? Psalm 19, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean. Anybody know the rest of the verse? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord... Listen to that. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. It is for endurance 
That we fear the Lord. That we trust His work in our lives. That we accept His discipline for us because He loves us. Verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which you have all become partakers. And by the way, that's a positive statement He's just made there. Jewish brothers and sisters, He's saying, Hey, you're under discipline. We're under assault. No, you're under discipline. And that's a good thing. You're all under this discipline. But if you are without discipline, of which you've all become partakers, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. And the phrase, actually it's a single word for illegitimate children. In the Greek I can say it. It's nothos. In the English I won't say it. But it's the same word. And it's right here in Scripture. The word for an illegitimate child. And and, and the Hebrew writer is saying, look, if you're not being disciplined, you're illegit. You're not a child of God. Because the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. And to suffer, even the assaults of the enemy, to suffer in the name or for the name of the Lord Jesus means you're a legitimate son. You're a legitimate daughter. You can praise the Lord in that. When was the last time you thanked Him for the attacks of the enemy? And we don't normally think that way. But hey, Lord, thank You for allowing this to happen in my life. Thank You for this crisis. Thank You for this hardship. Thank You that I got called out for my faith. Thank You that that guy was such a jerk to me just because I started talking about Jesus. Thank You so much, Lord. You're receiving the discipline of the Father. You know, anyone can suffer stupidly. And that's not what we're talking about. Oh, woe is me. Wait, if you made a stupid decision, you should suffer for it. But if you're suffering because you are following Jesus, if you're suffering as a son, as a daughter, you have a Father who really cares about you to sanctify you in such a way. The discipline of the Lord. Not suffering for sin, but suffering as sons and as daughters. Verse 9. Furthermore, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to, note this, the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. I love that phrase. It's the only time in the entire Bible the phrase is used, and that is, Father of spirits. The Father of spirits disciplines us. As opposed to the fathers of our flesh. And the difference is that the fathers of our flesh discipline us for a short time, but the Father of spirits disciplines us for good. The Father of the flesh disciplines us for certain behaviors and expectations. The Father of spirits disciplines us for eternal purposes. For our good and for good, the Father of Spirits. Patri ton numaton. Again, it's the only time in all of the Bible that that phrase is used as a name for God. Why? Because if the fathers of flesh disciplined us in our flesh, how much more the Father of Spirits disciplines our hearts. He goes straight to the heart. That's where His discipline is. That's where His work is. At the core of our being. To sanctify, to purify the inner man, the inner woman. So if you're having hardship, if you're facing difficulty, praise the Lord, the Father of Spirits is working in you. is disciplining you. And He's grounding your hope in Him. 
What He allows to come at me outwardly disciplines me inwardly. Listen to Paul describe this in Romans chapter 8, verse 12. Brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, listen, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is not just an idea that the Hebrew writer came up with. This is something the Holy Spirit is teaching us, that the Father of Spirits utilizes all manner of difficulties, hardships, and persecutions to sanctify us, to encourage us, to build up our hope, to ground our hope for the long haul, for long term, for good, for eternity. He's raising up children to be Christ-like and to be glorified in Jesus. Now, hold with that theme. For the discipline is of a father to his children. A father to his children. Hold that thought. Keep that with you. Verse 11. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We have a number among our fellowship who are struggling right now with physical ailment. Who are, we would say, who are really under physical attack or really dealing with some physical hardship. Some that are bound to home because of it. Who can't even get out right now. Some who are in and out of the emergency room. I mean, we've, we've been having a lot of these things that have been going on lately. And I was sending out a couple of cards to some of these folks this last week. And I actually sent them Hebrews chapter 12 verse 11. And I had to pray about that one because I knew this is what I was supposed to send. This is the verse. And I sent it to one. I wrote it in one card. And I thought, well, well, she can handle that. So I sent it out. And then I came to the next card and the Lord said, yeah, do that again. But I just sent it. Yeah, he, he needs to hear that. Okay, Lord. Four different people I sent this same verse to. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. You're sending something like that to someone in the emergency room? You know, someone who's having a difficulty, physiologically, painful hardship, and you're saying God's disciplining them? Well, no, I'm not saying it, but I think the Lord is. (laughs) Hey, that's not a bad thing. Again, if you're being disciplined, even physically, your Father must love you so much to be taking you through this. I'll tell you what, my time in the hospital and my time lying in bed at home was disciplinary. I needed that time. It's not discipline because I, I sinned and I did something bad and God was you know, giving me a whipping. No, it was disciplinary in that it settled me to process and think about things I would not have had time to think about otherwise. To focus on His sanctification. To dig deeper into Bible study when I wouldn't have before. Discipline, we've got to get out of our minds that discipline is this harsh, bad thing. No, discipline in the hands of God is good. It's a blessing. 
And yes, if you have a physical ailment, he may be using that as an act of discipline. Why would he do that? Because even though it's not joyful, it seems to be sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I told Les today, I'm really chewing on that right now. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I, I'm, that, that phrase is just spinning around in my heart. And I'm praying about it. Lord, give me more insight as to what does that mean? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'll tell you what, the first verse that comes to mind is, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Psalm 34, 8. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, this is how it works. Discipline, hardship, even persecution cause us to seek God. To seek our refuge in Him. To be at peace and at rest in Him. When I'm having physical pain, to seek Him out. When I'm having an emotional pain, to go to Him. When I'm having spiritual pain, to run to my Father. And as the discipline draws me to Him, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That is, gets me right. It reestablishes rightness with God. And I begin to perceive Him and understand Him and hear Him and find my comfort in Him and not in other things. You know what the number one killer is in America right now? Are you ready for this? It's the opioid crisis. Every five seconds, someone is dying of heroin overdose in America. That's how bad this is. How does it get there? People running to find some kind of high, some kind of relief, some kind of experience from a drug. We do it with alcohol. Hey, we do it with Advil, man. I just want some relief. And the pain drives us to something. Well, hey, what if it drove us to the Lord? What if it disciplined us in Him? It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And this fruit of righteousness is both for now and for then. It's got eschatological overtones. That is, it's a peaceful fruit of righteousness that as we are disciplined by God right now in this life, and we accept that discipline, we get realigned, we get right with Him. And it's good. And peace comes when you're right with God. But eschatologically, that is end time speaking, last days speaking, it indicates a sweet future peace that is coming as well. If we're willing to walk in lives disciplined by the Lord and not by the world, doing what the Lord would have us do and not what the world tells us to do, we come to this place, well, Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. See, he's saying exactly what the Hebrew writer is saying here about discipline. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also at the revelation of His glory may rejoice with exaltation. The peaceful fruit of righteousness, I guarantee you, we're going to experience that in ways we can't even imagine when Jesus comes. Revelation talks about the fruit on the trees and the trees that yield their fruit every month throughout the year. 
The peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's that, it's that picture of, of a righteousness coming. And we hang in there right now as God's cultivating the fruit of His righteousness in us over time in the grounded disciple. And all the while we realize Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The discipline of the Lord. So, before we go on, from a hope that surrounds us and a hope that grounds us, consider that. In your life, what's hard? What's difficult? What's painful? You have two options in responding to it. You can say, woe is me, and cry to be released from it. Or, you can say, Lord, use this. What are you doing? Show me how you're disciplining me in this. You can ascribe it to Satan and be wounded. Or you can ascribe it to the Lord and you can grow in discipline and hope. I suggest you ascribe it to the Lord. Number three in the outline. A hope that abounds in us. A hope that abounds in us. A flourishing, overflowing hope. Watch this, verse 12. Therefore, after laying out this discipline, after explaining to these Jewish believers, your hardships are not from the enemy, they are from the Lord, and He's disciplining you in them. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I think of the lame man at the beautiful gate. Remember the story, Peter and John come walking up and they they see him there, and he's begging alms. This is that lame man who was at that gate ever since he was born, so he had been there for, what, 30 years This same gate that Jesus went through every time He came into Jerusalem. Therefore, Jesus saw this lame man and walked right by Him. Did not heal Him. Why not? Well, I believe so that Acts chapter 3 could happen. He knew He was going to be healed. But it had to happen at the right time. And so Peter and John come in there and Peter says, I don't have any money to give you. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I say to you, stand up and walk. Now, man, for all the jokes we make about Peter, that was bold. You don't do something like that unless you expect a result. Have you ever done that with someone who, you know, sprained their ankle horribly and couldn't walk? Have you ever just grabbed them by the wrist and said, come on, walk in the name of Jesus, stand up? And they're like, oh. Actually, a better question is, why have you never done that? Why, why don't we do that? I think it's because we're afraid. They'd go right down. We'd be like, oh. <laughs> Peter grabs him by the wrist, yanks him up, says, seizing him by the right hand, Acts 3, verse 7. Peter raised him up. Immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. And listen to this. This is just great. With a leap, he stood upright. And he began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now that is not something you normally saw in the temple. You don't normally see that in church. Unless it's a Pentecostal church. You know, which we could use a little more Pentecost here. But you don't normally see people leaping and jumping around. This guy's coming into the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Come on now. This is nutty. 
jumping and leaping. I, I told this story years ago. I was teaching through Acts with a, with a high school group. <laughs> I was a lot younger than I am now. And this is probably one of the reasons why I sit down when I teach. But I was teaching this and I was trying to get across the point to them and help them understand. And I was on a stage about this high. They were seated out in, in our student room. And we had a piano on the floor right by the stage. And I jumped up onto the piano to explain the leaping and the jumping and the praising the Lord. And I'm up there going, can you imagine how excited? And they're all just looking at me like, he's on the piano. <laughs> they thought I was nuts. You know what? If you were standing in the temple courts that day, you would have thought something crazy is going on. This is inappropriate. This is not what we do when we come to temple. Leaping around. What's the matter with this guy? Well, it's his first day on his new legs. <laughs> He's never walked before, so can you blame him? That's what I call an abounding hope. Because he's bounding through the entire temple complex. An abounding hope with strong ankles and strong legs and and, and strong hands. And, And I want to give you four things within this abounding hope that he lays out here. Practical things that we are to do with the discipline of the Lord in hopeful lives. Practical suggestions for the disciplined disciple. And number one is strengthen weak hands and straighten feeble knees. That's number one. Strengthen weak hands and straighten feeble knees. Here in verse 12, he says strengthen the hands that are weak or flagging and the knees that are feeble. And that word strengthen is anorthoo. Anorthoo, which means to make straight. The word translated here, at least in the New American Standard, is strengthen, but it's literally to make straight. To straighten out. Remember he's been talking in the context from the first couple of verses of running the race? So keep that in mind because that theme continues to weave through the teaching of this chapter. Straighten out. Straighten the legs. Straighten the hands. It's both of them. Straighten and strengthen. Strengthen and straighten. It's the same word. How do we do it? How do we strengthen weak hands? Lift them up in worship for one thing. Lift them up in worship. Hey, are you one of those during worship that you don't sing very loudly because it's a little embarrassing? Are you one who would never raise your hands? And I'm not saying you have to raise your hands to please God. I'm just making a point here. Are you one who wouldn't raise your hands because, well, it's a little embarrassing? What if someone sees me? What about the people in the rows behind me? What would they think of me if I started to lift my hands in worship and praise? And you know, I think the issue is not what they think of us. It's what does God think of us? What am I saying to the Lord? What is my attitude? And we've been over this many times, and I'm really preaching the choir on Wednesday night, but what does my attitude say to the Lord in terms of how I deal with worship? Are you feeling weak in your life? Worship. Worship God. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. Don't, don't, don't come in late. Worship. And you will find strength in the worship. Yeah, well, I'm just not much of a singer. I don't really care. Then make a joyful noise. Just sing. Just open your mouth. Because it's not for you, and it's not for those around you. It is for Jesus. But there's a remarkable thing that happens. This dynamic in worship that we begin to get strong. Are your hands weak and flagging? Unable to do the work of the Lord? Lift them up in worship. Stretch them out in ministry. Think about the man on the Sabbath. At Capernaum, 
when he had the withered hand and Jesus was going to heal him and he's watching the Pharisees and they don't want him to... And they're watching him. And what does he say to the man to heal him of his shriveled hand? Does he just say be healed? No, he says stretch out your hand. Man, engage in faith. Are your hands weak? Worship Him. Utilize them in ministry for the kingdom. Put them to work for Jesus. Isaiah 35 verse 3 says, Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Strengthen your hands. In worship, in ministry, in the Word. How do you straighten feeble knees? Get on them. Pray. Just pray. James said in James 5.16, Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Whoa, I'm not a righteous man. Yes, you are if you're in Jesus Christ. I'm not a righteous woman. Yes, you are, ladies. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are righteous. Therefore, your prayers are effective. So pray. Knees weak. Feel like you're having trouble standing for the Lord in this world? Get on your knees. We're we're about to study the book of James. That's the next one in the docket when I get back from Israel. And open up James. And I'm excited for that. It's different. Very different than Hebrews. James, the brother of Jesus. James wrote some amazing things, but James chapter 5, verse 16 comes directly out of James' own personal experience. Listen again. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James had a nickname. Did you know this? His nickname was passed along to us. We heard about it from a guy named Hegesippus. Hegesippus in the second century, was a chronicler of the church. He wrote around 165 A.D. and he informed us of the nickname of James, the brother of Jesus. Want to know what it was? They called him Old Camel Knees. Camel Knees. Well, that's weird. Well, listen. Hegesippus said James was frequently found upon his knees begging for forgiveness for the people so that his knees became hard like those of a camel. Have you seen camel's knees? They're bizarre and they're tough. And they're thick and they're hardened. You want to strengthen your knees? Get on them. Want to strengthen your hands? Lift them up. What I'm talking about here is not just going through the motions, but I'm talking about a life, a life that is unashamedly worshipful and prayerful to Jesus Christ. You want to get stronger in your faith? Act on your faith. Want to get weak in your faith? Sit back. Faith must be exercised. Hope must be exercised. When Peter said of the apostles and himself in Jerusalem, we will be about prayer and the ministry of the word, you know, part of the reason was they needed to continue to exercise those things in the church. Because what happens in the church, mark my words on this, what happens in the church is when we don't exercise the ministry of the word and prayer, we exercise a lot of other things. We get focused on so many other things. We start to think that the business of the church is what's important rather than the business of the Father. What was Jesus doing when He was 12 years old? His parents had to go back and find Him in the temple. 
He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or some translations say about my father's business because it doesn't say in my father's house. What Jesus says is, don't you need, didn't you know I needed to be where my father was? About my father? Doing my father's will? So many things that we do, not only in church, but in our personal Christian lives. So many things that we do that have nothing to do with eternity. I understand some of them we have to do. I just finished my taxes last night. Didn't want to do it. Had to. It's frustrating. Nothing spiritual about that. Had to do it. I understand that. God does. But what matters? What matters? What we need to be about exercising as disciplined followers of Jesus Christ is the ministry of the Word and prayer. I would add into that the worship of God. Unashamedly following Jesus. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. But it's not just strong hands and straight knees. He says in verse 13 also, make straight paths for your feet. So that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So the second thing to note here is that we straighten out your paths. You want to hope that abounds in you? Strengthen flagging hands, straighten feeble knees, and now straighten out your paths. And that word, make straight, verse 13, is orthos. Which I tell you because the other word was anorthoo. Same root word. Both of the words talk about straightening. Orthos, it's where we get orthopedic, orthotic, orthoscopic. It has to do with straightening. It's a medical term for straightening a limb which is out of whack. And what he's driving at here is he's saying, look, in your hardship, in your difficulty, get disciplined. Live straight. Isn't it interesting in our culture that to be heterosexual is to be called straight? Live straight. Walk straight. Make straight paths. Do what honors God. Do right. Choose holiness. And your path will be level. I told you on Sunday, when a runner is in training, they may run on sandy beaches, unlevel hills, and, and that's a good way to train. But when you're running the race, you want that track to be flat and straight. You want no hindrance to the run. Make level paths. Psalm 26, verse 11, As for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me. Be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level place. In the congregations, I shall bless the Lord. And Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26, which by the way is, by the, way is the basis of verse 13. Proverbs 4, 26 says, Watch the path of your feet, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right, nor to the left. Turn your foot from evil. What happens... When you're out running a race, or perhaps you're out jogging, and you decide to go two directions at the same time. I know that's kind of hard to imagine, because normally we don't. Normally we're going to go just one. But what would happen? You would end up disjointed. Right? He says, make straight paths, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We end up dislocated. If we try to go different directions, out of joint. That's another Greek word that is medical, meaning dislocation of the limbs. Ektrepo is the word. You don't want to be ektrepo. You don't want to be out of joint. Strengthen hands. Strengthen feet. Make straight the way. 
Which basically means as much as it has to do with you, make choices that are right and holy and good. And if someone calls you goody two-shoes, tell them, no, I'm not goody two-shoes, I'm goody straight shoes. Verse 14. Verse 14, the next one, he says, Pursue peace with all men, and note this, the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So number three is seek peace and sanctification. Strengthen hands and knees, straighten your paths, seek peace and sanctification. Why these two? Peace and sanctification. Because both of these things in our relationships highlight the value of the relationship over my rank in the relationship. You know what I mean? Let me put it this way. It highlights person over position. To seek peace and sanctification. Seek peace with those around you. With those we walk. And the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, Ephesians 4 tells us. What's significant about that? Hey, am I more concerned with coming out on top or coming out together? Do I want to stand before Jesus when it's all said and done as the senior pastor of the bridge? Or do I want to stand with Jesus with the bridge? See, the answer is easy for me. I have no title to hand Him. He's the only one who's got the title, the chief shepherd. I want to stand with Him before Him with you. I hope you want to stand before Him with me. We want to do this together. Therefore, in our relationships with one another, it's not about who's above the other. Glenn and I were talking about this last week. You've got in the church two positions of of leadership, if you want to call it that. Two, Two roles, if you will. Leaders and servants. And the leaders are supposed to be servants of the servants. So that we all come out together, not one on top. He says, seek peace. And sanctification. The sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now we touched on this on Sunday. But we tend to think of our sanctification as being personal. What God is doing in me personally. Hey, guess what? It's also interpersonal. My sanctification is important for you. Your sanctification is important for me. Our sanctification is important for the non-believer. Do you believe that? If we believe that, then we're not trying to reach the non-believer by looking like non-believers. We reach the non-believer by looking like Jesus. Note what he says, without which no one will see the Lord. That means if I'm not being sanctified in my life, no one's going to see Christ in me. And if they don't see Christ in me, I can't even talk about Him. So it puts a whole new spin on our sanctification. I pray, Lord, sanctify me so that my message will not be tarnished. Didn't Paul say that? So that after I have run, I will not myself be disqualified? I don't want to do anything that would disqualify the message of Jesus Christ. Tragically, it happens all the time. We see it in churches. You see pastors fall, great failure. One of the things that that so impressed me with Billy Graham, in all of his life in ministry, where were the scandals? Where was even the hint of sexual misconduct? None. He wouldn't even get into an elevator with a woman. Unless it was his wife, then he would. 
I mean, that was the standard was so strict with him. His sanctification, because Billy Graham understood my message only works if it's in me, if it's seen in me. The gospel is only shared by us if we ourselves are being sanctified. And if we're not, you know what? Do yourself a favor. Don't share the gospel if you're not willing to be sanctified. Because if they don't see Christ in you, they are not going to hear of Christ from you. The sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. My sanctification, personally, is a divine tool of interpersonal outreach and evangelism. Listen to it this way. David got it. He said in Psalm 51, verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence. Do not take away Your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of Your salvation and sustain me with a, with a willing spirit. Then, He says, then I will teach transgressors Your ways and sinners will be converted to You. When, David... After I've been given a clean heart and a steadfast spirit and the Holy Spirit in me and the joy of salvation, after I have been sustained, after God has done this in me, sanctification, then, then I can bring the gospel to someone else. The sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Whoa, wait, wait, wait a minute. What are you talking about? No one comes short of the grace of God. Can you? Is it possible to come short of the grace of God? It is. And I'll tell you exactly how to do it. Ready? This is how you come short of the grace of God. Rely on flesh and muscle to run the race. Rely on yourself to get across the finish line. Rely on your own goodness, your own righteousness, your own ability. Lean into your ingenuity. Utilize your planning and your schemes. Make it all about you. And you can easily come short of the grace of God. Replace grace with self-righteousness. And you know what the pastor calls this? He says it all comes from the root of bitterness. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. The first thing to note, and this is more of a side note, but quickly catch this, bitterness is never self-contained. It always defiles many. The bitter person is never bitter in a vacuum. Their bitterness gets on family and friends and others. Bitterness is defiling of many people. So the fourth thing to note in this little list of abounding in hope is, number four, shovel out bitterness. Shovel out bitterness and safeguard your birthright. And they go hand in hand. This practical suggestion here in a strong, disciplined life is set by example of Esau's spiritual atrophy. So far, he's been positive, and all of these have been positive. Do this, do this. These are great things to do. And now he's saying, don't do this. Don't do what? Don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. Don't come up short of the grace of God. How did Esau do it? Well, Genesis 25, Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for some dinty more stew. 
Genesis 27, Jacob steals the blessing right out from under Esau. What's the deal with that story? This is so instructive to us. Esau spurned his birthright and therefore lost the blessing. And note that order. He spurned the birthright. He lost the blessing. Verse 16 again, Don't be like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau is the biblical picture of flesh over faith. He's the earliest one. We get in Genesis, he is the picture of hunger over holiness. Of a man's man rather than a man of grace. He shows us that picture even in contrast to Jacob who ultimately would become Israel. And the Spirit, note this brothers and sisters, the Spirit describes Esau with two words in verse 16, immoral and godless. You want to know what those two words are in the Greek? Godless is babelos, which means profane. Immoral is pornos. Sexually immoral. Why those two? Sexual immorality and profanity characterized Esau. Why? Because when people become bitter toward God or even toward others, invariably they turn to the flesh. These are the things that flow out of someone living in the flesh rather than living by the Spirit. Someone who's rejecting the grace of God for the power of humanity. It comes out in Sexual immorality, and I, that's weird to me, but it, it, it almost seemed out of the blue, and yet, no, that's, that's right. If I'm living by the flesh, then I want the ultimate of the flesh. If I'm trusting in the flesh, then I want what the flesh has to offer. And I submit to you, by the way, I mentioned pastors falling a few minutes ago. Billy Graham never did. But you know what the number one cause of a pastor's moral failing in a church is sexual immorality. It's having affairs. Why is that? I think it's because pastors start to trust in their own ability. I think it's because the pastor starts to live in the flesh, thinking he can pull together all that needs to be pulled together, and the more you live by the flesh, the more you are going to want to satisfy the flesh. Sexual immorality is the ultimate goal. Profanity, living a profane life. This describes the man of flesh. This describes Esau. James said in James 4.4, Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that is what Esau did. Spurned his birthright because he was hungry. Hey, the birthright was everything. The birthright was important. The birthright was handed down father to son to son to son right down the line. He didn't care. Just give me some of that red lentil soup. Give me something for my stomach. Verse 17 tells us this, and watch this. This is huge. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance. Though he sought for it with tears. Though he sought for what with tears? Repentance? No. The blessing. He desperately wanted the blessing. You want some proof for this? Genesis chapter 27 verse 34. When Esau heard the words of his father's, or of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. 
and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, my father. So he came in and found out that Jacob had just gotten the blessing. He already had the birthright because Esau sold it to him. Now he's got the blessing and Esau freaks out. Genesis 27.38, Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept. That's fascinating. Sold the birthright. But now he doesn't get the blessing and he's crying like a bitty baby. What's going on here? 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us that sorrow that is according to God produces a repentance without regret unto salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death and Esau's was a worldly sorrow. In fact, Esau's bitter weeping is a prime example of worldly sorrow. But what's remarkable to me in the story is that while he spurned the birthright, he wept over the blessing. What's happening there? It tells us something. It tells us that the most immoral, godless person still desires a parental blessing. The most dysfunctional, the most hateful and spiteful toward mother or father still wants the blessing. Still longs for the parent to put the hand on the head and to pronounce blessing. Esau, for all of his manliness, lost the blessing. And it's the one thing he wanted most from his dad. To hear his father say, well done, son. You're blessed, son. I see a future for you, son. Don't you have a blessing for me? Esau cried. No, I don't. Why not? Again, because Esau spurned the birthright. You understand the connection here? You cannot receive the blessing if you despise the birthright. You cannot receive the blessing if you despise the birthright. The birthright. What do you mean the birthright? Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. We have a birthright. God offers every man, woman, and child on the planet offers a birthright. First, you can be born again. What happens when I'm born again? I become what we sang. I become a child of God. I suddenly have a birthright. Handed to me, given to me, bought and paid for by Jesus. That that I can carry that birthright and hold that birthright and know that I belong to Jesus, that I belong to God the Father. I have the birthright. How many people sell it out? I don't want the birthright. Rather have the stew. And so they sit there in their lives and they stew in their humanity. I don't want the birthright. I just want the blessing. Hey, if you don't receive the birthright, you will not receive the blessing. And it always came in that order. The birthright and the blessing. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope. 
The birthright is my hope. Without the birthright, I have no hope. I want the blessing. Well, you're not going to get the blessing. You have nothing to put your hope in. You've got to receive the birthright. You must be born again. There's only one way to be born again. To be born of the Spirit. That's to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And thus be born anew by faith in Jesus and the outpouring of His Spirit on you. Those who are born again have been given the birthright. And guess what? The blessing's right around the corner. The blessing is coming. Father is going to bless every one of His children. Verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For if they could not bear the command, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. Exodus 19.12 And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, Moses said, Moses, who was called a friend of God, said, I am full of fear and trembling. It's the one quote of Moses in the entire book, in the entire sermon. I'm full of fear and trembling. In fact, I told you when we started Hebrews, it's the one quote of the Hebrew Scriptures that specifically is ascribed to someone. Someone is specifically named, and that being Moses, and he's saying, I am full of fear. If I was Moses, I'd be like, couldn't you have quoted me saying something else? But that's the one. Read the story. Read the story. We're not going to do it tonight. But Exodus 19. The story of Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. Man, Hollywood has never done it justice. It was terrifying to the entirety of Israel. Perhaps as many as three million people gathered at the base of Mount Horeb, the holy mount, Mount Sinai, And as they were gathered there, they were scared to death. Hey, they should have been scared to death. You know what God was giving them? The law. And the law is a fearful thing because it is unkeepable. Which I don't think is a word, but we're going to go ahead as if it was. You couldn't keep it. You can't keep it. No one's perfect. God hands this perfect law and says, here, do that. But but Lord, we can't. Exactly. The law is terrifying. Like Mount Sinai, the law shakes us to the core. It rumbles, it burns, it smokes with all holiness, but man, it is an undoable thing. And the children of Israel couldn't even come near the mountain, much less the keeping of the perfect law. And no one can. And yet people still cried out, cry out, I-, I want the blessing. I want the blessing. I'm going to do everything I can to be good enough to get the blessing. Well, you're not going to get the blessing. Not without the birthright. You've got to have the birthright. You've got to be born again. And so John wrote in John 1.12, As many as received Him, to them He gave the right, the birthright, you might say, to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. That's the birthright. And it's ours. And the blessing will follow. But if you come to the mountain, Mount Sinai, you try to stand, you will be nothing but terrified. 
You'll be standing there without birthright, without blessing, and nowhere to go. The birthright is being born again. By the way, that's still not the promise, but we're about to get there. What is the promise? Oh, almost. So it's a hope that surrounds us. Jesus surrounds us and dwells us, is upon us in all ways. It's a hope that grounds us through the discipline of the Lord. It's a hope that abounds in us even as we receive sanctification and live holy lives. And number four, it is a hope that founds us. A hope that founds us. You see, the law was founded at Mount Sinai. Again, amidst flashes and thundering and darkness and fear. But the hope, the hope we have is founded upon the promise of another mountain. Verse 22, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Stop right there. You have come to Zion. Zion. You know, the, the Iranian leadership calls Jews in Israel Zionists. And they mean it as a put down. I would love to be called a Zionist. What a great word. Zion. Few words resonate more deeply in the Jewish heart as does Zion. Psalm 132.13 The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. Why do you guys keep going back to Israel? Because I want to go to the place that God has chosen for His habitation. I want to see it. I want to walk it. I want to, I want to walk the ramparts. In fact, listen to this. Psalm 48, beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is, is Mount Zion in the far north. City of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. The sons of Korah, by the way, wrote Psalm 48. Not David. I would expect David to love Zion. He did love Zion, but his love was infectious. And the sons of Korah, they write in that same psalm, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Oh, walk about Zion. Go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death. Oh, Zion. 3,000 years ago, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. And David established Zion as the capital of Israel. By the way, did you know that even though Israel had come into the land, had been in the land now several hundred years, David comes along and he recognizes Zion as significant. The Lord puts it on his heart. And so it was held at that time by the Jebusites. He captured it from the Jebusites. That's interesting because all the rest of the land round about was at that time now held by Israel. By the Jewish people. Even under the rule of King Saul, Israel already had their first king. And yet right there in the middle of Israel is this little plot of land, this mound if you will, this hill, Zion, Jebus, Jerusalem. And David captured it. It was the only land that was not in Israelite control when he captured it. And wisely he established the seat of 
the kingdom there. Because kind of like Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia is not in any state. It's its own location for all the states. Washington, D.C. is for all of the states. So Jerusalem would be for all of Israel. And David comes in and he captures Zion. It's a fantastic story. I wanted to tell it tonight. I won't. Read Second Samuel chapter 5 and learn the story. It's wonderful how they take the stronghold of Zion. Zion has the, the sense, the word itself, the, the sense of being austere. And it is awesome. It's a beautiful place. I love I'm not a desert guy, but I love Jerusalem. There are a few places that I love more. Jerusalem. In the Bible, Zion variously refer, refers to the city of David. It refers to Jerusalem. It refers to the Temple Mount. That's called Zion. And even at times, the entire nation of Israel is called Zion. And Zion has had its ups and downs. You know, it's been under siege some 40 plus times, attacked 54 times. It's been laid waste. They say over history, the city of Zion has been destroyed and rebuilt 30 times. Jerusalem. Usually when a city's destroyed, that's pretty much it. You move on somewhere else. But all the archaeology that's going on in Jerusalem and is ongoing. Did you read? Did you hear about this? They just found a bullet of Isaiah. At the southern steps of the Temple Mount, what's a bullet? It's a seal. They found a seal with the signature of Isaiah the prophet, dated 700 years before Christ, which is exactly when Isaiah lived. And they're always finding stuff like that because you got layer upon layer upon layer there in Zion. And God said, it's not going to be a pretty history. Through the prophet Micah of Moresheth, chapter 3, verse 12, Micah said, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the temple will become high places of a forest. And you can look at old pictures of Jerusalem after the falling of the temple in A.D. 70. Look at pictures, ancient pictures. Back when photographs actually even could be taken, even just go back to as recently as the 1800s and Zion, the temple mount, it's a plowed field. It was a high place of a forest. It was... Destroyed. Not now. Not now. We see Jerusalem rising. We see things growing. It's, it's remarkable just to be there. But in spite of Zion becoming a plowed field, God never took His eye off it. God has always desired Zion. The Bible calls it the apple of His eye. He who touches you touches the apple of His eye. And he's always kept his eye not only on Zion, but also on the Zionists, the daughters of Zion. Second Kings 19.31, Isaiah said, Out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord will perform this. Paul picks up on that same verse. Romans 11.26, and he quotes from Isaiah 59, he says, So all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Hey, we have come to Mount Zion. We have come to Mount Zion, and, and in coming to Mount Zion, we have come to the footholds, the foothills of the promise. Stay with me on this. We're in the foothills now of the great promise. What's the promise, Rick? We're almost there. We're in the foothills. As we come to Mount Zion, here our hope is verified. 
at Mount Zion. Get this. Mount Zion to which we've come, but not to which we have entered. He says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have not yet entered it. We will, but we haven't. Note this. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the myriads of angels, and to the general assembly, and he's not talking about the United Nations. Those two phrases are very closely tied, and depending on how you read this, you go back and look at it in the Greek, and you take out the punctuation, which wasn't there in the first place, and you take out the verse marks, which weren't there, what some translations indicate is when he says, and to myriads of angels, to the angels, to the general assembly... What that literally translates, General Assembly, is Panagoras, and it means a festal gathering. In other words, you come to myriads of angels, a festal gathering, a a festival of angels, a joyful place, a festival of angels. Does that sound like something Jesus said once? Listen. Luke 15, verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He said in Luke 15, 10, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about the bash when we all show up home. Think about the angels cutting loose in festival celebration. I think that's what he's saying here. You've come to myriads of angels to the festal gathering. The angels in festival because we have come to Mount Zion. We're there at the foot of Mount Zion in the presence of the rejoicing angels. Why? Because to stand at the foot of Mount Zion, you have been saved. You are among the saved. You are the sinners who have repented. We are at Mount Zion. Verse 23, to the general assembly, that is the festival. And to the church of the firstborn, who I like this, who are enrolled in heaven. We're enrolled. Yeah, we're enrolled. And we've started classes, but we haven't graduated. We're about to. And our names, our names are on the program of the graduation ceremony. Revelation 3.5, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. His name, your name, my name is in the book of life. You've been enrolled. Your name is there. Your name's in the book of life. You've got nothing to fear. You have come to Mount Zion. There's a party going on. Our names are written down. And you've come to God, verse 23 continues, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That is the great cloud of witnesses. We've come to this point. We're standing there at this point. We're close. Verse 24, and, oh, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Again, it's mercy over justice. It's grace over vengeance. And verse 25 says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less... We who turn away from Him who warns us from heaven. What's He talking about here? See, He's still making the comparison of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. 
You have not come to Mount Sinai to rumbling and fire and threats and law and impossibility. You've come to Mount Zion, to Jesus, to joyful angels, to God the Father, to the place of your enrollment, to the great cloud of witnesses. That's where we have come. In verse 26, And His voice shook the earth then, but now He has promised, saying, Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, it denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Oh, keep your finger there quickly. Quickly run back to the book of Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. We are almost to the promise. I promise you. I'm going to tell you what the promise is. You may already know. Go blurt it out. But we're almost there. Haggai chapter 2. See, this is what he's quoting. When he says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Listen to the context. Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, or, or that can also be translated, the desire of all nations shall come. Either way, it's speaking of Jesus. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Those of you traveling to Israel, you want to thumb mark that page. Because we're going to talk about it in Jerusalem. But get this. This is a two-pronged prophecy. Haggai is speaking of a pre-fulfillment and of a final fulfillment. The pre-fulfillment was when Jesus entered the temple in His first advent. The glory of the second house was greater than that of the first. Though the Spirit Himself, the glory of God, came into the first temple and literally drove the priests out because His presence was so full. For all that grandeur and greatness and glory, when Jesus in human skin walked into the temple courts for the first time, the glory was greater. Because God was there in person. And that first fulfillment we see in Jesus' first coming. But remarkably, it will be completely fulfilled in His second coming when the earth is shaken and the heavens are shaken and everything is shaken And this prophecy is fulfilled along with the promise, which is what? Back in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom. That's the promise. The kingdom is the promise. We receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The kingdom is the promise. The promise is the kingdom. The kingdom is the one thing that will never be shaken. That is, it will never be overthrown. Listen, every nation on the planet will be overthrown. 
Every kingdom, every government, every power of the world is going to fall. It's inevitable. America is not going to be the shining city of the hill, on the hill right on into glory. Great Britain is not the new Jerusalem. Every power is going to fail, but the promised kingdom, the kingdom of the promise, will be established in all the earth when the King of Kings returns. And he says again, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Listen, the kingdom is the promise. Talking to Jewish Christians here again, it is the big promise to Israel. It's the promise that God laid out. I am going to give you a kingdom. To us a son is born. A son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Israel was promised. I'm giving you a kingdom. I'm going to make it happen. And it was an unequivocal, unconditional promise. I will bring the kingdom. It's one of the reasons why I absolutely accept the idea of the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ on earth when He returns and we return with Him. Why? Because God promised. The promise is the kingdom. The kingdom is the promise. And the kingdom is coming. And by the way, everything that we're doing in our lives right now is preparation for the kingdom. You realize that you are not here right now to be successful right now. You're not here right now to do some great thing in your life right now. Oh, you may. Lord willing, you may. He may empower you to do something marvelous. But there aren't very many Billy Grahams. Mostly there's just the rest of us. What have I ever really done, Lord? Listen, brothers and sisters, the kingdom is the promise. Stop working for this life. Stop trying to achieve for some ultimate goal in this life. No, our dreams are for the kingdom. Why is it that our young men are given visions, but our old men dream dreams? Shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, shouldn't it? The young men dream dreams because they have a lifetime to work on it and get to those dreams, right? It's not what he says. Your old men shall dream dreams. What are they dreaming of? The kingdom. The kingdom. Your future role. Your, your future opportunity. Your future rule and reign with Jesus Christ as we rule in His priestly government. The kingdom is the promise. And the promise is the kingdom. But note this, our God is a consuming fire. <laughs> the hellfire, damnation, and brimstone preachers love that verse. What does that mean and why is it there? I mean, especially at the end of a chapter filled with hope, all of a sudden now our God is a consuming fire. How is that hopeful? Look at the context. The context is everything. What does He mean by this? Look at verse 28 again. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, note this, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. What is an acceptable service? To the Jewish mind, that means offering sacrifice. That we may offer sacrifices to God. Our sacrifice is our worship. He'll tell us that in chapter 13. 
But for now, that we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hey, the consuming fire is the fire of sacrifice. And our God consumes it all. He consumes everything laid upon the altar. Nothing can stand in the presence of God's intense, white-hot perfection. He is the consuming fire on the altar. And you know what's remarkable? No one can stand before Him except Jesus. And what Jesus did on the altar was become literally consumed by the fiery wrath of God at Calvary. But at the same time, while He was consumed by the wrath of God, Jesus consumed the wrath of God. So that you, so that I, so that all the daughters of Zion with us may soon receive the promise of the kingdom, the kingdom of promise. And God said, Psalm 2 verse 6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The kingdom is the promise. Let's pray. Father, what hope. Oh Lord, what encouragement. Oh Father, we have received our birthright. And the blessing, the blessing is before us. That is such great hope. The kingdom, Lord, before us. What marvelous hope. Lord, it strikes me I could be 95 years old and not feel like I had accomplished in this life what I had hoped to accomplish. And that's okay because I could still dream dreams of the kingdom. You're still drawing us forward to that glorious day when we will do what we have been sanctified to do. When will we, we will function, Lord, in that which we have been prepared to function. Lord, when I think just about our fellowship here on North Whidbey Island, what we're going to get to do in the kingdom, oh, this life pales in comparison. Lord, when I think about this, it really removes all stupid earthly ambition. It makes me content, Father. To love people, to trust in you, and to find the comfort that comes of hope. It allows me, Father, not to worry about what I'm accomplishing or not accomplishing, what I'm able to do or not do. Oh, Father, because the kingdom, the kingdom is the promise. My prayer, Lord Jesus, is that for every one of us here tonight, youngest to oldest, those early in life looking out over what they expect to be a lifetime of opportunity, and those older in life looking back on a lifetime behind them, wishing perhaps they had done more or other, for all of us, Father, the dreams are before us. The kingdom is ahead And I praise You for giving us that hope. That is a hope beyond all hope in this world. And Father, I ask simply You would encourage us tonight, encourage each of us to not despair in this life, to not worry of things that really aren't going to matter, and to recognize that there are so many things we do that are just going to be consumed 
on the altar. Oh, Father, help us to live as kingdom-minded Zionists, looking forward not just to being at Mount Zion as we are today, but ascending the mountain of the Lord. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us tonight. In Jesus' name, Amen.